0: If you would please turn your Bibles with me to James Chapter Three. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the opportunity to partake in the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we pray that you would call to remembrance all that you taught to your disciples and all that you have taught to us through the words of your disciples. We pray, Lord, that you would call to remembrance the glory of your sacrifice, Lord, the weight of the sin that was over our heads, and Lord, the, the, the crushing penalty that you paid on our behalf. And Lord, help us also to remember that the next time you will enjoy the fruit of the vine, Lord, is with us in your kingdom as we hope and long for that day. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. And until that time, continue to instruct us through your word. Lord, we pray that you bring conviction. I pray, Father, that you bring instruction um, and that you would edify your people through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Prior to December 7th, 1941, who can tell me what happened on December 7th, 1941? Pearl Harbor, very good. Prior to December 7th, 1941, Japanese leadership was embroiled in a debate over how to handle crushing U.S. sanctions. They could either surrender to the U.S. demands or they could go to war. The Japanese Prime Minister thought that the tension between the U.S. and the Japanese could be eased through diplomacy, and the Japanese leadership was split between those who wanted war and those who didn't. Unable to muster the courage to advocate for diplomacy, the Prime Minister sought the help of Emperor Hirohito. Hirohito stood before the leaders of the Japanese army and the Japanese navy, and he recited a poem that his father had written. A line of that poem reads, In all four seas, all are brothers and sisters. Then why, oh why these rough winds and waves? Now this poem was intended as a pacifist lament. However, its ambiguous language was interpreted as a fatalistic concession to war. Though many in Japanese leadership agreed that diplomacy was the best way forward, none of the pro-diplomacy leaders had the courage to speak out publicly, and so Japan began making battle preparations. Further miscommunication meant that Japan never announced their declaration of the war to the United States, and thus Pearl Harbor was viewed as a deceptive uh, a, a deceptive sneak attack during a time of negotiation. John Toland summarizes it this way. A war that need not have been fought was about to be fought because of mutual under, misunderstanding, language difficulties, and mistranslations. Miscommunication led to the U.S. joining the world, world War II and precipitated the process that would result in the destruction of Imperial Japan. Those communications had consequences. Have you ever felt the consequences of bad communication? Have you ever spoken a lie or angry words that resulted in conflict? Perhaps it didn't lead to a world war, but it may have felt like one in your home. Now why is this? It is because communication has consequences. This is true in diplomatic affairs. This is true in business relations and legal contracts. But this is true and and more so true in the Christian life. Someone used their mouth, did they not, to speak the gospel of grace to you. They told you that you were a sinner in need of grace, and they pointed you to the fountain of that grace. It was then with your mouth that you confessed your sins to God. It was with your mouth that you begged Him for mercy. And it was with your mouth that you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is with our mouths then that we share this gospel of Jesus Christ. It is with our mouths also that we can destroy marriages, that we can destroy friendships, and that we can destroy churches. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. With our tongues we can produce good fruit. With our tongues we can produce bad fruit. So how ought we to think about our words? Our passage this morning, James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12, gives us counsel. So turn with me if you have not. But the main point this morning is this. Bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. Now, the bridle is all about control. Wild horses running through a valley are beautiful to look at, but they're effectively good for nothing. A horse with bit and bridle you can put to work. So, too, the tongue is an incredibly powerful tool for good, but also for harm. If bridled, the tongue can be a tool to bring about health, the restoration of relationships. If unbridled, the tongue can destroy relationships, it can destroy people. And because of this power, James begins his exhortation regarding the tongue with those who do the most speaking in churches, the teachers. Look at verses 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Throughout this epistle, James hammers selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, and covetousness. In chapter two, James criticizes the church because they are showing favoritism and affection for the rich rather than the poor. The people in the church are trying to use the church for personal gain. This, of course, is leading to horrible fighting as James lays out in chapter 4, and we all know. This striving after personal gain and covetousness is leading to brothers and sisters to so much infighting that James characterizes it as you are murdering one another. And James locates the source of this fighting in chapter 3, verse 14. Just move your eyes over. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James characterizes this sort of wisdom, this wisdom that is not from above, but this wisdom that that is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The root of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is the pursuit of worldly wisdom and the result is hypocrisy. Gospel fellowship is corrupted by selfish ambition. Think about what it would look like to be in a church where everyone is trying to use everyone else for the sake of personal gain, for social or financial gain. Think about it as church as social club. Think about what it would be like to be in a church where you didn't know whether or not someone was being nice to your face because they wanted something from you or because they genuinely cared and were concerned for you. Think about a church where you never knew whether the person speaking to you would then turn around and stab you in the back or, or say something horrible about you. Think about a church where everyone felt like it was their job to demonstrate that they were a better Christian than everyone else. And so they would constantly judge one another's actions and speak evil of each other. What would the result of such fellowship be? Division, anger, frustration. And those most tempted to use the church for selfish financial gain are? The leadership. Teachers, those in positions of leadership and those pursuing positions of leadership. This could be pastors or this could be anyone pursuing leadership in various ministries. Think about a church where the, the leadership is primarily concerned with image and perception so that the leaders themselves look good, again, for the sake of personal gain. Now, the leadership sets the tone. If the leaders are driven by selfish ambition, the congregation will follow. And so James begins by targeting the teachers and specifically exhorting humility, reminding them of the judgment of God and their own sinfulness. Teachers are not the highest authority in the church. God is. And everyone, teachers and lay individuals included, will all stand under God's judgment. If someone assumes an office in the church for the sake of personal gain or plays the hypocrite, even if that individual can conceal their wretched motives in public, God sees everything. God knows everything. And we will all stand before God and as Matthew says, we will give an account of every word we speak. This is why Paul calls us to examine ourselves. Because we cannot fool God. And His opinion is the only opinion that matters. We are all sinners. The Scriptures testify that no one is good, no one is righteous. And the Scripture testifies that we will all stand before the Lord. That means that we are all in utter need of grace. The only reason that anyone can become a Christian is because they understand the judgment of God, they understand their sinfulness, and their need for God to redeem. We all stumble in various ways. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian on this side of glory. So when fellowship becomes a show of how together we all have it and how perfect our sanctification is over and against someone else's, we lose the gospel of grace. The Christian life is the life of humility, continual confession and repentance, and the continual embrace of the grace of God as we seek to image that grace to others. Church is not based on being better than anyone else. True Christian fellowship is based on the fact that we all recognize the fact that we stand in need of God's grace, that we stand in need of Christ's righteousness alone, and that this is not available to those who have it together, but this is available to those who recognize that they are sinners. Christian fellowship should not be a community of the sanctimonious. It should be a community of the redeemed, seeking the glory of our great Redeemer. And true spiritual maturity is exemplified in such humility and such wisdom. The church addressed by James thought that wisdom and pride of place belonged to the one who spoke the most. But James points them to the fact that humility is tied to meekness and good conduct. Fellowship and leadership centered on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ exemplifies humility, which is the recognition of the priority of God and His Word and living our lives in such a way that is concerned for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. Leadership that exemplifies the wisdom and humility of Jesus Christ will create purity. It will create peace, gentleness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity, true love. It creates a community that invites us to decentralize our own ambitions, to decentralize our own wants, to die to self, and to pursue the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ for the good of our brothers and sisters. Now James highlights teachers because of the influence, but, but because of their influence. But the message of James 3 is not, teachers, you need to watch your mouth. Everybody else, just fire away. This section is actually unpacking something that James said earlier. In chapter 1, verse 26. Look back with me there. If anyone if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice the language of bridling the tongue, which recurs here in James chapter 3. Teachers should be exemplars, yes, but true religion Truly Christian people bridle their tongue. No one is off the hook. All of us, our words have consequences. And bridling the tongue is the distinction or one of the distinctions between true religion, that is religion which saves, and false religion. This does not mean, again, moral perfection. We don't want to get into a cycle of legalism. Another way to say this, brothers and sisters, is that redeemed people speak like redeemed people. Redeemed speech is not perfect speech. But redeemed speech is speech that is filled with confession and contrition over sin. It is speech that is seasoned by the knowledge that we are all sinners and that we all deserve hell. And that the only way out of this is the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a speech that is grounded absolutely and unwaveringly in the authority of the Word of God. And it is speech that is directed to His glory alone. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Warm-hearted gospel fellowship or warm-hearted gospel speech should be the hallmark of being in the household of Christ because we should all have hearts that are warmed by the gospel of grace. Therefore, we should have tongues that are warmed by the gospel of grace. How we employ our tongue is central to gospel fellowship. Therefore, bridle your tongues because your words have consequences. Now, it sounds like everything is bad and dismal, but that's not where James starts. The consequences can be very good. And that's point number one. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace. Discussions in Christian circles regarding the tongue, at least in my experience, almost always take on this incredibly negative tone as though we would better off if we just never spoke to each other. But that's not where James starts. James starts with praise of the tongue. Look with me. We're going to finish verse 2 and then go through verse 5. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. If someone can bridle his tongue, he is a perfect man. Now, perfection is not in the sense of unerring, never never does anything wrong, but perfect here has the sense of complete, mature. The mature are able to direct their speech to good ends. Those ends are to love God and to love neighbor rather than self. The mature are able to use their speech to bless their brothers and sisters rather than cut them down. James employs two illustrations to picture this for us. The first is the horse. Now we run the risk of missing this point because of where we are in terms of modernity. I remember the first time that I went to a horse race in Churchill Downs. You hear about the Kentucky Derby? I didn't go to the Kentucky Derby, this was just like a Tuesday at the at the racetrack. And we went to watch the horses run. And you hear the stories of, of what the, the glory of horse racing is. And I get to the track, and it's some very, very small men riding some very, very large animals <laughs> at about 50 miles an hour. And I remember thinking to myself, it's neat, but that's not a Ferrari. <laughs> They're running around in a circle. This isn't Le Mans. You know, I'd, I'd much rather watch car racing than this. I went with big, big expectations, and after two races, I came away disappointed. Why? Because of modern technology. But imagine this. Imagine if all you knew was what you could accomplish with your own two hands. If you needed a field plowed, it was you and what you could dig up. Imagine if all that you could transport is what you could carry on your back. So if you had to go get groceries or if you had to go to a neighboring town, all you could take is what you were willing to carry. That's the situation humanity was in prior to the horse. In that context, a horse would have multiplied the amount of work that you could do many, many times over. Horses were incredibly powerful tools in ancient times. They were powerful, they were fast, they were strong. But for the horse to be useful... It had to be conformed and guided by the will of the horseman. Again, a wild horse is beautiful to look at, but it's useless to transport goods or pull a plow. And so the horses were caught. They were trained. They were bridled. Now the bit is a small piece that attaches to the, to the, the bridle that fits inside the mouth of the horse. And then it's attached to the reins so that the rider can ap- apply pressure to tell the horse to slow down, speed up, to turn left or right. The small metal piece in the mouth of the horse makes the horse an incredible tool. Likewise, think about the ship. The ship represented the ability to harness the power of wind and wave. Two incredibly powerful forces. We have all seen the devastation created by powerful winds. And and I don't know if you've ever been on open water in the ocean, but at least for me it's a very unsettling feeling. The ship represents the ability to harness these two things. They made it possible to transport goods and people over many, many distances. You, you think about when, when they started circumnavigating the globe. It's, it's amazing that you can now go places that you could not walk to because we have the power of the ship. And those giant, powerful ships are guided to and fro by a tiny rudder at the back of the ship. A relatively small piece of wood at the back of the ship was controlled by the helmsman, which made it possible for him to use the ship for his purposes. Again, this very small member was able to control the entire ship to follow the will of the captain. Because they could then be controlled, the ships made it possible to travel across the whole world. James connects our tongue, which is a very small part of our body relative to the whole he connects the tongue to the bit and the rudder because similarly, the tongue is an incredibly powerful tool with incredible potential. The tongue, when it is embridled, when it is employed for good purposes, becomes a tool with the power to build. It becomes a tool with the power to create, to bless. Remember, the power of life is in the tongue. Throughout his epistle, James highlights several different ways that we can employ the tongue for good. The very first, think of chapter 1 and verse 5. We can pray to God. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now Christian, the power is not in the prayer itself, but the power is the fact that we have access to be able to speak to God and to ask Him for things because of what Christ has done for us. Christian your tongue can be a powerful instrument of grace if you use it to pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Husbands, are you praying for your wives? And what sorts of things are you praying for your wives? Are you praying that they will behave or are you praying that the Lord will bless them richly with the wisdom of his word? Wives, similarly, pray for your husbands. Wives, what what are you praying for your husbands? We, we all need to, to have the mind of Christ in these things. Contemplate the prayers of the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 and pray those things for your spouses. Pray those things, parents, for your children. Children, pray these things for your parents. Look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians and pray that for one another. Pray that God would make you all wise. Start where James does it here in verse 5. And then trust God to answer those prayers. Pray for comfort for those who are mourning. Pray for peace for those who are in difficulty. And above all, pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ will find deep joy and satisfaction in Christ and not in their sin. And then watch as God answers those prayers. Second point that James highlights is that we use our tongue to speak the word of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are brought forth, that is, we are made Christians by the word of truth. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, it is because someone spoke this word to you. And think about that person's, the consequences of that person's use of their tongue. And think about what, it is, what an honor it is to be used of the Lord for such a thing. To proclaim the truth of the Gospel and to see the, the real ramifications of the fact that words, uh, the, the power of life is in the tongue. The power of life through the preaching of the Gospel, the Lord gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And again, God is the one who does this by His will, but we get to be instruments, we get to be means by which God accomplishes His will. So Christians, speak the Gospel. Speak it to people who don't know the Gospel and speak Gospel grace to one another. Paul says in Romans 10, 14 and 15, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People are saved because Christians faithfully use their tongues, use their words to accurately convey the fact that our hope in life and in death is in Jesus Christ alone in the promise of the resurrection. Christian, do you have this desire to share Christ? When was the last time that you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who did not know Him? When was the last time that you shared the gospel of the grace of Christ with one of your brothers and sisters to encourage them in the fact that we are not trusting in our righteousness, but that we are trusting in Christ's righteousness alone? Does the glory of Christ season your speech when you are with your brothers and sisters and when you are with those who do not know Him? These are all important questions to be asking. A third way that James highlights that our tongues can be instruments of grace is in confessing our sin to one another. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the beginning of the Christian life, is it not? That we confess our sin to God. Our tongues are immediately changed. Our speech goes from covering our sin, from hiding it, to confessing it, to revealing it to the Lord God Almighty. Our tongues go from self-justification and disbelief to declaring, Oh Lord God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And then as we continue in the Christian life, we continue to sin. There are private sins which must be confessed to God alone, and perhaps discussed with a close brother or sister for counsel, But then there are sins that we commit against one another. Those sins must be confessed to one another. And then we should go to that other person. We must seek their forgiveness as well. Husbands, wives, when is the last time that you heard in your household or that you uttered in your household, I sinned against you in this way, I am sorry, please forgive me. And when was the last time that I forgive you without qualification or instruction was uttered? How, how do how we respond to these things, if we humble ourselves before God and one another, if we honestly confess our sins to those affected, we will be healed in the sense of our relationships will be restored. Grace will be brought into these situations and the light of the Word of God can shine. Humility before God and one another, which is the confession of sin, is the foundation of good marriages and good friendships. You cannot be intimate with someone from whom you are trying to hide yourself. As we embrace the humility of heart and humility of speech, our relationships will be strong and sweet. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace if the confession, if you confess sin, and if you extend forgiveness and withhold bitterness. And lastly, look at, we'll look at James chapter five, how he ends, nineteen and twenty. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Christians, as we seek to encourage one another in the grace of Jesus Christ, and as we speak the truth truth in love, we will be a means by which we all persevere in the faith. Christians, you need each other. You need one another to speak the truth. You are God's gift to one another because you have mouths that can speak forth the blessing of God's Word. When our tongues are bridled by the Word of God, they are incredible instruments to convey the grace of God to one another for building up, or as he says here, to pull people back from the brink of death. Now, this doesn't always mean that we're speaking happy, clappy words to one another. Gracious speech sometimes is a rebuke. It is sometimes a statement that your course of life is destructive. If you continue on this path, you will be destroyed. Gracious speech can be hard words of correction. But what is the motive? Is the motive genuine love for brother? Or is the motive coming out of self-righteous correction? The point of gracious speech is that it's always thought through. And that it's always spoken for the good of the hearer and not because of personal preference. Your use of speech can can build, it can bless, it can create. It's life-giving. But that will only come out of a heart that is tethered to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and a heart that is bent to obey Him because it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Now, this doesn't mean uh, that all we talk about is the Bible. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I would encourage all of you to talk about the Bible more. But the point of Christian speech is to ask this question. In everything that I am discussing, are my words bridled by the authority of Scripture? Christian, what areas of your speech are and are not governed by Scripture? How, how is your communication with your spouse, friends, children, co-workers? Examine yourself, because you will have to give an account to God for your use of the tongue. The power of the tongue is amazing. Therefore, bridle your tongue, because your words have consequences. But this is not the only power hidden in the tongue. So look back at chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, at this point, James hinges the passage. He's just talked about the creative potential of the tongue, and now he's shifting focus to the destructive potential of the tongue. Yes, the tongue can create beautiful things, but the tongue is—it can be a graffiti artist, and it can utterly wreck beautiful things. And so point number two, your tongue can be an instrument of destruction. Your tongue can be an instrument of destruction. James now offers a warning about the destructive potential of the tongue. The bridled tongue has massive potential for good, but the careless tongue can be a weapon of mass destruction. Like the good consequences, James also offers us illustrations of the bad consequences. He starts with the fact that the tongue is like a small fire. Look at verses the rest of verse 5 and verse 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Fire just burns. It doesn't consider what it's burning. It doesn't consider loss of life. It doesn't consider loss of property. Fire just burns. We have seen footage of raging forest fires in California that were started because someone did not make sure that their embers of their campfire were totally tamped out. The small little ember turns into a raging inferno that consumed thousands of acres of forest and destroyed millions of dollars worth of property, and these fires have even claimed human lives. Just like that, that small ember can burn down an entire forest. The unbridled tongue... Careless words or words designed by selfish concerns are the same way. That small ember can create a fire that will consume a marriage, consume a family, consume a church. In this way, the tongue stains the entire course of life. Now, standing behind this, I think, is Matthew chapter 15. It it is not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him clean, but what? What proceeds from... and why? Because that proceeds from the heart and it's that that defiles a person. There is a direct connection between the tongue and the heart and an unbridled tongue reveals an unbridled heart. The unbridled tongue is the tool of unbridled passions and it will wreak havoc on your entire course of life. Every single aspect of your life is negatively affected by an unbridled tongue. With the tongue we have power, the power to ruin lives through lies, through slander. We have the power to destroy relationships through hateful speech and gossip. We have the power to destroy friendships through cutting words designed to belittle or harm. Can you think of a single divorce that was not in some way the result of the use of the tongue? Marriage is ruined because of lies, because of an unwillingness to admit wrongdoing and ask forgiveness, because of an unwillingness to speak a kind and life-giving word rather than a biting hateful word. Even the phrase, I want a divorce, is a use of the tongue. Those are words uttered. And in church, how many churches have been ruined by unbridled tongues? By harsh or inappropriate words uttered by a pastor or a congregant to a church worker? Or by a pastor who refuses to use his tongue to say what needs to be said? By gossip, by slander, by false teaching? The tongue has outsized power to do harm, just like the smallest virus wreaks havoc on your entire body and an entire population, so too an unregulated tongue. The next thing that James jumps to is a snake. Look at verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Many different kinds of animals can be tamed. But who in their right mind would take as a pet and let roam free in their home a rattlesnake or a viper? Anybody? I will definitely not visit your home. (laughs) Does anyone want to visit the home of someone with a free-ranging cobra? I don't think so. But friends, when our tongues are unbridled, we are free-ranging cobras. Our tongues give vent to sinful inclinations. It gives vent to selfish ambition rather than words steeped in the grace of Christ. We are like free-ranging rattlesnakes. The poisonous the poisonous bite will sting initially, but over the course of time, that venom will kill and destroy. We have the power of destruction, the power of death laying dormant in our mouths. And when our tongue is unregulated, when it's fueled by a sinful heart, the tongue will spew forth cancerous poison and it will bring destruction. James' point with these illustrations can be summarized as a warning. Your tongue has immense potential to do destruction and ruin if you allow it to be an instrument of unrighteousness. Therefore, bridle your tongue because your words have consequences." James then focuses on the most insidious form of this, hypocrisy. Look at verses 9 and 10. With it, that's the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James throughout this whole book has his eye on the church community, and because of that, James targets hypocrisy. Nothing is more dangerous to church community and the individual Christian than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes in many forms. It can be saying one thing and doing another. It can be saying one thing in one context and then saying something totally different in another context. It could be treating someone well to their face and then tearing them down behind their back. Hypocrisy is two-facedness. Throughout the book of James, James demonstrates that hypocrisy is the true enemy of faith and that hypocrisy is the enemy of the church. It destroys the Christian witness, and it destroys church fellowship. It destroys our prayers, and ultimately, hypocrisy will destroy our own souls. And why do people play the hypocrite? As I was prepping for this sermon, I've had to ask myself, Alex, why have you acted hypocritically in the past? And yes, I have acted hypocritically, and yes, more recently than I want to admit. And it was always, in every case, to gain some sort of personal advantage. I did the easy thing rather than the right thing for the sake of personal convenience. I did the thing that brought about maximum personal pleasure or satisfaction without concern for who might be hurt. I prioritized pleasure and ease over faithfulness to God. We act the hypocrite when we think there is something to be gained personally by doing so, and that is always the fulfillment of sinful, selfish desires." The root of hypocrisy is selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and the tongue that gives vent to those things gives vent to the very fire of hell. When we are solely focused on getting our own way, we unbridle our tongues and we open the gate of destruction for those around us. There are numerous examples of this in James' church. But look at James chapter 4 briefly. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. He's characterizing what they're doing as murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Hypocrisy, 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 hypocrisy. What a picture James is painting. James' description is a congregation full of people with unbridled tongues and unbridled passions and they are destroying one another to fulfill and get their own desire without care or concern for the other. I don't think that they were literally murdering one another. But I do think that the gossip, the slander, the anger, the vitriol was so vile that it was so divisive that that is the proper expression of what is going on. The result is the destruction of the church. And the result, more sadly, is the desecration of the name of Jesus Christ. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy run at cross purposes with the work of Christ. He is all about His own glory, not yours, but He is all about your good. I want you to know, Christian, that our ultimate good and our ultimate glory is not pursuit, is not found in the pursuit of our own glory itself, but it's found in the pursuit of the glory of Jesus Christ. Good speech comes out of a heart that is focused on Jesus Christ and bridled by His Word. Destructive speech comes out of a heart bent on self. In this passage, we see hearts filled with selfish ambition and covetousness. The prayers are not answered. Hypocrisy hinders our prayers. Any good thing that could come from our speech is subverted by hypocrisy and by selfish ambition. So Christian, bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace or an instrument of destruction. And James concludes this section with a call to reflection because the tongue, whether it's being used for grace or for destruction, is the revealer of your heart, which is the final point this morning. Your tongue reveals your heart. If you bridle your tongue, it can be an instrument of grace. If you do not bridle your tongue, it can be an instrument of destruction. But either way, your tongue is revealing what is present in your heart. At the beginning of this chapter, James calls anyone to seeking the office of teacher to examine themselves with honesty. Now he's calling all of us to examine ourselves with honesty. Because the tongue is revelatory. Look at verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is calling on his readers to examine themselves with honesty before God, to look at themselves in the mirror and to call out what they see. If a spring is pouring forth salt water, what kind of spring is it? Salt spring. If the plant is producing figs, what kind of plant is it? A fig tree. The point is that things produce things according to their nature. The unbridled tongue spewing forth selfish ambition and boasting and falsehood is simply giving vent to a heart that is bent on such things. Hateful words come from a heart bent on hate. Uncaring words come from a heart that is bent on selfish concern. Hypocritical words reveal a duplicitous heart. The forked tongue that gives vent to hypocrisy reveals a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. So friend, how are you using your tongue? Are you currently acting hypocritically? Are there areas in your life where you need to take a serious look at how you've been using your speech? When when your your spouse sees you day to day, what are they seeing? When your children see you, are they observing someone who lives as a Christian, or are they watching someone who just makes them go to church on Sunday? What would your spouse say about your language? What would your closest friends say that your language is revealing, or your coworkers? But more importantly, friend, what does the Word of God say that your speech is revealing? Matthew twelve thirty six and thirty seven, Jesus says. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account of every, every, every careless word that they speak. For by their words they will be justified, and by their words they will be condemned. Friends, I implore you, we will all stand before the Lord God Almighty, and we will all give an account of every single word that we have spoken. Every word. We can hide things from friends, we can hide things from family, but God knows everything. Do we care? How seriously do you take these things? How seriously do you take the the opinion of God? James's point here is examine yourself. What fruit is being produced? But we know, Christian, do we not, that there is hope. God can intervene. God can change the heart. But that starts with honest speech. And James says that that starts with the confession of your sins to God. Confessing your heart condition to God. It's not hiding. It's not covering. It's honestly assessing and asking God to change. God redeems hypocrites. God changes hypocrites. God can pull the backslidden out of the muck and the mire. And indeed, God loves to do that. And friend, if you're with us this morning and you do not know the saving mercies of Jesus Christ, I implore you, turn to Him. Because the Word of God declares that we will all stand before the Lord, that we will all give an account. And as you think about every word that has come out of your mouth, has that been motivated by love of God and love of neighbor? And if it has not, every word you have spoken is displeasing and dishonorable to God. We're in serious trouble. We're all stained by sin. Even our most righteous deeds are stained by impure motives. But God provided, did He not? There's one person whose entire life was without stain or taint of sin. His name was Jesus Christ and He accomplished all of the righteousness of God under the law so that that righteousness can be ours. It can be those of us who are not righteous, which is all of us. It can be ours by faith. And as we accrued God's just punishment, Jesus Christ, the righteous man, the perfect man, took that punishment upon His shoulders. Everything that we deserve, the judgment of God, is, is forgiven. It is done away with. It is removed from us in Christ by faith. And so, friend, I implore you, if you do not know Jesus, don't stand on judgment day without Him on your side. This is the good news, and this is why we gather. Christians, this is our hope. This is our confidence that when we stand before God, it will not be us alone, but that we will have an advocate who will declare that our debt is paid and that we are forgiven and righteous in Christ. This hope can be anyone's by faith alone. So James has labored to exhort us to bridle our tongues because our words have consequences. Our tongues can be used for destruction, but Christian, what goodness of fruit can come from a tongue that is f- overflowing from a heart bent on glorifying the Lord and satisfied in His love? And so please pray with me as we close. Lord, we thank You. We all recognize, Lord, how sinful our speech is. We recognize, Lord, the heart condition uh, that, that we all have. But we thank You that You change the heart. We thank You that by the power of the Spirit, You take uh, that sinful heart, You take those sinful inclinations, Lord, and You bend them to Yourself so that we might find true and lasting joy and satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. And Lord, I pray that You will help us to call these things to mind. Lord, help us to examine ourselves honestly. Help us to seriously consider our situation and, Lord, reveal all of those areas where we are falling short of Your glory, where we're falling short of what Your Word calls us to. And, Lord, help us to use our tongues. Help us to use our tongues to honor our brothers and our sisters, to encourage and edify our brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that we would be instruments of grace in Your hands, Lord, as You continue to work out Your kingdom and Your plan and purposes on this earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.